0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the I Believe Your Abuse podcast, where we talk all things narcissistic abuse, focusing mostly on those who are or have been in an intimate relationship with a narcissist. I'm your host, Brandi Fuller Anderson, counselor, coach, advocate, and author of the book, I Believe You, Escaping Understanding and Healing from Narcissistic Abuse. Before we get started, Just know that narcissists can be both male and female, married or single, straight or gay, rich or poor. Stories that I share are about my ex-narcissist, who is a he. So that's how I tell my story and it helps me to remain consistent. But please feel free to insert your own pronoun to make it fit your story. If you have any questions about what I mean when I say narcissist, Go back and listen to episodes 1 and 2 where I explain this in more detail. If you've managed to escape your relationship with a narcissist, you know it wasn't easy. But why is it so hard to leave a relationship with a narcissistic abuser? By the time you get out, even if you were discarded, you were often already aware of how miserable this partner was making you. So why then do you feel even more miserable without this person? Why is it that long after you've awakened to the fact that you're in a toxic relationship, after your feelings of love for the abuser have faded, after you've finally put your foot down and fought back against the abuse, Why is it that you're still having trouble letting go of the person? Let's explore the question. Can abuse be addictive? Today we'll be delving into the scientific literature which provides us with the answers to these questions. The scientific literature which pretty clearly shows the correlation between trauma addiction and what we've found from these scientific studies is that the chemicals that release into the brain that lead us to experience what we interpret as the feeling of love can have such a powerful impact on the brain that they can actually contribute to a person unknowingly creating their own reality in a sense the biology of love utilizes many parts of the brain The limbic system, which plays a vital role in the emotions that you feel, also is responsible for memory and learning. So, do you think it's possible that these functions ever cross over each other? Potentially get tangled up with each other? A human brain in love is flooded with sensations often transmitted by the vagus nerve transforming much of what we experience into emotion. This crucial part of the autonomous nervous system, it also plays a role in the fight or flight response. So could it be possible that these two functions get tangled up with each other? According to a study by Sisu Carter and Stephen Porges called The Biochemistry of Love and Oxytocin Hypothesis, The modern cortex struggles to interpret the primal messages of love and weaves a narrative around incoming visceral experiences, potentially reacting to that narrative rather than reality. This is a prime example of how sometimes out of survival, we focus on a fantasy which may be surrounding our situation. Where do narcissists love to live? In fantasy. So would it make sense that much of what we first attach to is the fantasy picture that they painted for us? The possibility of what a future with them could look like. That possibility then turns to hope. Hope that we can have that fantasy. Could that fantasy or the hope of that fantasy, then become your narrative? When you separate from this partner, you believe you miss them. Do you believe it's possible you miss the abuse? The devaluation? The constant put-downs? The worrying? The walking on eggshells? how dismissive this person was with your feelings or well-being the cheating the lying hmm unlikely is it more likely that what you are missing is the narrative you are grieving the collapse of that fantasy not this despicable person what they brought to the table or how they made you feel. Your feelings of love and attachment could be instead attached to the hope that one day you could live in this fantasy future. Makes sense. But it's not that simple either. Human beings require intimate connections with other people. We simply don't thrive without them, even if all of our other basic needs are met. So does this make love a basic need? And if so, how would it affect us to experience love as a result of a false narrative? Or if we were to become unable to maintain stability when hormones that contribute to these emotions become dysregulated? Obviously, our reliance on food, water, and shelter wouldn't be considered an addiction. Are physical needs and emotional needs so different? Clearly, this was a rabbit hole of research studies, chemical processes, statistical analysis, opinions, and insight, and I won't be able to go into all of it in just one show. But I'll also post links in the show notes for some of the studies that I looked at prior to the show, so you can go and... Read them for yourself if you want to explore this topic further. So let's dive in deeper and consider what does love as an addiction look like? Is this even love? Could we really be fooled and therefore betrayed by our own brains? When talking about addiction, it is essential to mention one of the major players, which is dopamine. Dopamine is a type of monoamine neurotransmitter. It acts as a chemical courier, communicating messages back and forth between nerve cells in your brain and then the rest of your body. It also acts as a hormone. Dopamine plays a significant role in how we feel pleasure, and because of that, plays a vital role in addiction. You'll probably hear it mentioned many times here. There's a lot involved in someone becoming addicted to something. Generally, addicts are usually trying to feel something, or trying to not feel something. They want to feel something pleasurable, and they want to stop feeling something painful or unpleasant. Now if they want this to be a quick fix, meaning I'm feeling something unpleasant and I want it to stop, like right now, there aren't many options for making this happen. So a lot of times people turn to drugs. The psychological effects of drugs is felt immediately and users are quickly rewarded with either positive or negative reinforcement, or in other words, that increase in the good feelings and or decrease in the bad feelings. How does this happen? When dopamine is released in the brain, feelings of reward are felt. To simplify this, when dopamine is released, we feel pleasure, thus we feel rewarded. This feeling of immense pleasure can create compulsion or the necessity to repeat the behavior which allowed us to feel so rewarded and flooded with pleasure. Hormones like dopamine play an essential role in our lives with our partners. Examples of this are seen with the euphoria described in that feeling after sex or our initial attraction to our partners and even our reactions to maltreatment from these same partners. It's all related to hormones. The neurotransmitter that's responsible for cocaine addiction is the same one responsible for addiction to dangerous romantic partners, according to Harvard Health. Those narc tactics that provide us with intermittent reinforcement work well with our dopamine system studies show that dopamine flows more readily available when the rewards are given out at an unpredictable schedule rather than obviously followed conditioned cues and if you've ever been in a relationship with a narcissist you know that rewards and punishment are a major part of their daily routine of abuse narcissists often use intermittent reinforcement as a form of manipulation against their partners even if unknowingly And because narcissists lack whole object relations and object constancy, they constantly display behavior that is often described as hot and cold, or they love you one minute, they hate you the next. This is because anytime they're angry, disappointed, or let down by you, they're no longer connected to any of the positive feelings and memories associated with you, and they treat you accordingly. When their ego has stabilized and they're feeling better about things they may switch to loving gestures and more fantasy building with you as time goes on not only do you adjust to this constant back and forth but those loving positive moments become fewer and further between the bad times it's widely agreed upon that when a person experiences emotions Situations or experiences that are intense in nature, the emotions attached to that experience can lead to bond, so to speak. Enter the trauma bond. Now, it does not matter if these attachments are good or bad. This trauma bond is likely connected to the rush of adrenaline, which is also felt in new relationships, and then again during times of ongoing trauma. Now the idea of intermittent reinforcement, it isn't new, it isn't invented by narcissists. It dates all the way back to the late 50s when Skinner and Furster published their findings. You may remember if you studied about it in school, the experiments that they did were with rats, um, and the rats were continually seeking rewards in the form of treats, especially when those rewards came at unexpected times. In fact, the receival of unpredicted rewards had a greater effect on the rats as in the attachment to the reward seemed to be stronger. This experiment, it's well known. It's been studied throughout these decades and findings have been referenced by many others in times when researching trauma bonds. And this study is just one example that shows us intermittent reinforcement is strongest when it comes in an unpredictable pattern. As the interval becomes greater, the stronger the trauma bond becomes. And remember we talked about how those loving moments will become scarcer and scarcer, only strengthening the trauma bond. Those in abusive relationships with a narcissist become desperate for that next positive reinforcement. It begins to feel like a drug you must have, even without realizing it. Think about intermittent reinforcement in terms of your relationship with a narcissist. In the beginning of the relationship, your brain was overcome with oxytocin and dopamine, flooding you with feel-good emotions that you interpreted as deep, meaningful connections with your abuser. You may have even thought you were experiencing love. The feelings overwhelmed you to the point you could not think clearly or see through the thick fog of ecstasy. This was in part because of how the narcissist loved bombs in ways in which he's sure to offer the reinforcement all day, every day. For example, you may have received 30 text conversations and more than a, or more in a day or other gestures like maybe um, little gifts or constant ways of letting you know that they were just thinking of you. And really, it was ways of getting you thinking of them constantly flooding your brain with the chemicals needed for you to become attached. In fact, your addiction to these feel-good hormones has caused you to develop a sort of tunnel vision. This tunnel vision describes how you begin to focus on your narcissistic partner only. Their love, their approval of you, can easily become your main concern. You exclude all other cares and needs, including your own basic necessities. This is the first step in you becoming isolated from the rest of the world, and your brain has no idea that it's happening. Intermittent reinforcement of positive behaviors dispersed throughout the abuse cycle. Examples of these rewards could have come in the form of flowers, gifts, compliments, even sex or future planning even apologies, ensures that we still release oxytocin even after experiencing incidents of abuse. And what do I think the most crucial reward was? Hope. Although your abuser may not understand the science behind their abuse, they do know you keep coming back for more. They love this. But at the same time, they start to realize there must be something wrong with you, as you are someone who would put up with the poor behaviors that they're showing you. And as their impression of you lowers, so does their treatment of you. And so the toxic behavior ensues. But all this does is make you crave that reward even more. Intermittent reinforcement is necessary for the development of the trauma bond. There have been many theories proposed to help explain the bonding that occurs between the abused and the abuser. Not all have validity, but most have at least some components that make sense when you're thinking about something as complex as the trauma bond. Trauma bonding is such an interesting topic to me. It doesn't have one clear cause or one obvious starting point. It's a mixture of all the wrong circumstance at just the right time. I always read new studies or articles that come out just to read another perspective or definition offered about trauma bonding. I find it so interesting that many professionals can offer a definition without the mention of the cognitive dissonance or the nervous system. Or they offer definitions that are simple in nature and don't seem to capture any of the complex intricacies that better explain it. And then sometimes I come across one that inspires me, or it's so insightful that it will offer me something to really think about before jumping on board or shooting it down. So anyway, I read them all. And I came across an article not too long ago that I believe was by Melissa Pori. She's a licensed professional counselor. This particular article, it defined the trauma bond as that which was formed by a person who often idealizes their abuser. And when I first read this, I was like, what the hell? Idolize them. I despised my ex-snark. And still had difficulty walking away from him. But if I know anything, I know I did not idealize this man. I pitied him. So I let this kind of sit for a while. And the more I thought about it, the more I considered what may seem like idol. So I let this kind of sit for a while, and the more I thought about it, the more I considered what may seem like idealization to someone on the outside, and thought that perhaps what it actually was, was my inability to regulate my own sense of self without him. At a certain point, I had stopped looking out for my own self-interest, having only a tunnel vision for his needs, moods, and wants. My outlook on many things hung on his every word. As I obsessively thought about them, tried to figure out what they meant, searched for answers as to why I had ideas wrong, eventually accepting that I would never be good enough to make this person happy. That I would never do things the right way. That maybe I wasn't as special as I thought I was. Being clearly unable to tame this beast, clinging desperately to his next nice word. I quite easily surrendered my sense of self to this person. Perhaps this is why it starts to feel normal while he's acting as this extension of yourself, even though it's detrimental to you and your well being, and it feels uncomfortable and unstable once he's no longer around to perform this for you. When you're with an abuser with whom you have formed an emotional dependence on, you're never sure if they're going to be kind, cruel, or indifferent. Because of this, there's an actual high that's experienced when they're in a good mood and treating you kindly. When we are treated badly, our bodies experience stress, pain, and fear. When the same person who treats us horribly suddenly shows us kindness and safety, the relief feels euphoric. This doesn't mean you are incapable of logically thinking. You know abuse is not okay. Just the same as a drug addict knows that drugs are not good for them. The difficulty you have with leaving isn't you being stupid or blind. It's a biological phenomenon. An involuntary neurochemical reaction. Of course there's a difference. A drug addict knows they chose to use the substance they used. They know that substance leads to the reward. You did not choose this cycle. And for much of your relationship will not even realize you were in this cycle. So in order to understand the changes happening, you have to start justifying it with something that makes sense, given the knowledge you have at the time. If the narcissistic abuse continues, after a while, the narcissist doesn't even have to do anything special or grand in nature for the euphoric feeling to take effect. A simple smile A laugh, a hug, a good mood can put you on cloud nine. Before your narcissistic partner begins to devalue you, they are still most likely offering you sex, acting charming and fun. They may still give you gifts if you are one of the few to receive them. And you may receive frequent flattering text messages and phone calls and flirty gestures. This all represents the love bombing phase. But as time goes on, these kind gestures quickly fade away. The time between those happy moments, again, they become fewer and far between. So the time between those moments is greater and greater. This long duration of time in between the chaotic and happy moments only intensifies the building of the trauma bond. The damaging bond that you don't even know is growing until it's already there. What you think you are experiencing is intimacy. But really what is happening can be described as intensity. This is such a great way to explain the love bombing phase the rush of hormones the momentum behind the abuser's intentions and their skill at manipulation creates such an intense chaotic and confusing situation that you can't help but to interpret the relationship based off of what you feel and not what you logically observe in an article by licensed social worker susan anderson She notes that intermittent reinforcement in abusive relationships contains a push-pull dynamic that secure relationships lack, causing victims to become addicted to the drama and the chaos of the relationship. Paradoxically, individuals in toxic relationships feel more attached and trauma-bonded to unhealthy relationship partners rather than healthy ones who give them a sense of security our brain can connect to negative sources, sometimes with even more intensity than to positive sources. Now again, I don't think intermittent reinforcement and the flood of bio neurological chemicals alone is enough to cause the trauma bond in and of itself. Like many of the phenomena associated with narcissistic abuse, it requires the perfect storm of behaviors Emotions, hormonal fluctuations, and interpretations. In addition to intermittent reinforcement, the abused also starts to experience cognitive dissonance. If you remember discussing cognitive dissonance in earlier episodes, it is what happens when you become confronted with two conflicting ideals. Think about how these hormones have now caused you to feel attached to this reward but you equate this as an attachment to this person, which in turn leads you to interpret the hormonal dysregulation as feelings of love. You now associate a narrative with these feelings, and that narrative tells you that you adore this person. He is perfect and charming and kind. So once the devaluation phase hits and this perfect person begins to insult you, and hurt your feelings and lie to you that dose of reality doesn't align with what you believe to be true about this person and his character you may feel blindsided hence the cognitive dissonance yet both sides of your partner will continue to pop up and say hello from time to time And all of this just adds to your confusion. Remember that narcs are reliant on external validation. It's the only way they can regulate their own self-esteem. The attempts to defend and increase their self-esteem happen instinctively for them, adding to the unpredictableness of their behavior towards you. They deny any unpleasant emotions, so they start to add some gaslighting in the mix. Because you are confused, you begin to doubt your own perception of things. You may even find ways to blame yourself for your partner's outbursts, if you're someone with some introspect and willingness to take responsibility and correct any mistakes. Narcissists love to blame others for their behavior. And if you hear that you're at fault enough times, you may start to believe this is truth. When these abusive outbursts occur, your partner may threaten to leave you, give you the silent treatment or turn the situation around so he can play the victim. This fear of losing your partner, which is unconsciously your fear of losing his this dopamine high, causes you to panic, accept the blame, and desperately try to make changes in yourself. Your acceptance of blame may bring about some loving words from your narcissist, and in turn, those words of affirmation cause dopamine to be released. Of course, this dopamine high is short-lived. There is no way to definitively please the narcissist because no matter what you are willing to change about yourself or give up, in the end, it will never be enough. I know this for a fact. We can rationalize minimize, and even deny abuse due to cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance allows us to uphold our original beliefs about this person, even as we struggle with the blatant contradiction we see through behavior. We still view them as kind, loving, and affectionate people while romanticizing the early stages of the relationship. We live off of these rare moments of bliss. We combine the fleeting moments of happiness we experience and instead of focusing on the increasingly often despicable behaviors. We spend that time anticipating the return of the reward. This biochemical bond born from hell is already formed. There are some other past theories that have contributed to some ideas behind the trauma bond. For example, in the early 80s, Dutton and Painter proposed the traumatic bonding theory, which was based on Balby's attachment theory and was part of the criteria for their theory. One person in the bond must be physically or cognitively stronger than the other person. This criterion was supported by the observation that captors often begin to feel sympathy and even compassion for their captors. This sympathy is often called Stockholm syndrome. This research acknowledged this imbalance of power. You may find people will use these terms interchangeably as if they're one and the same, trauma bonding and Stockholm syndrome. But actually, while Stockholm Syndrome is an example of trauma bonding, these terms are not um, synonymous with each other. Just want to throw that out there. Domestic violence, it's, it's obviously much more prevalent than a stranger captive situation. It may not seem quite as extreme a situation, but how would the damage caused by this trauma compare? How would it compare with invisible abuses, such as financial, mental, emotional, spiritual, sexual, narcissistic abuses? What about when one partner has all of the control over another, such as in this theory? Such as between parents and children? Or when a spouse is being financially controlled? This research acknowledged this imbalance of power. Now, if you're like me, you may be thinking, I never allowed mine full control. I certainly spoke out against behaviors I did not like. Maybe I made my own money. And I had some semblance of control that I used to fool myself into believing I was in no danger. But if the insidious and underhanded nature of your partner's insults, devaluation and gaslighting diminished your self-esteem down to nothing and your tunnel vision of your partner's needs linked back to that dopamine addiction cause you to abandon your sense of self do you think you were on a level playing field mentally or emotionally the truth is you likely lost control in that relationship long before you admitted it to yourself You spent much time denying poor behaviors, trying to change yourself, praying he wouldn't leave you, blaming yourself for the relationship failures, hoping for things to change. This abuse had hijacked your ability to maintain control and placed the ball firmly in your partner's court, even if you were the one who made the choice to leave the relationship. The twisted thing is that as you begin to realize that what you are experiencing is abuse, you become ashamed about what you've tolerated to this point. And this, in turn, lowers your self-esteem even further and puts you further at risk for more mistreatment. This traumatic bonding theory would hold that this clearly developed imbalance of power is what creates the bonding between the couple. Another example would be in the case of a child with an abusive parent. The only way for that child to protect themselves would be to find a way to bond with the parent. When it is scarier for a child to admit that something is wrong with their parent, the child finds it easier to blame themselves and go along with whatever the parent wants. Just as in the experiments done by Skinner, Dutton and Painter also realized that offering intermittent reward or at the very least, pauses in abuse, contributed to the strength of the attachment. These small glimpses of humanity that you will see will feed that very dangerous extra component to that perfect storm creating this trauma bond. Hope. Hope is what allows you to believe in the fantasy future he might have promised. It is also what fills you with self-doubt about what you think happened or the intensity of which it happened it might also cause your own feelings to be unclear say those feelings of disgust you know you should feel for this awful person while this theory lists the cause of trauma bonding to both an imbalance of power and the intermittent reinforcement they've once again left out the cognitive dissonance which cannot be explained by either of the former, although being at least partially the result of the intermittent reinforcement. Of course, there's a biological component to the forming of this bond as well, Dr. Rhonda Friedman covers this a lot in her work in neurobiology. She acknowledges dopamine and oxytocin as the most prominent neurochemicals linked to trauma bonding. Dopamine, of course, responsible for yearning or the feeling of being addicted. And oxytocin, which many have termed the cuddle hormone or love hormone, as there's many studies that have linked this to the bond that forms between mothers and their children. The dysregulation of these two hormones can lead to obsession and a tendency to follow emotion rather than logic. This is why victims make excuses to justify the behaviors of the abuser. The abuser has essentially become the drug. This intensifies the strength of the bond and also increases the tunnel vision toward the abusive partner and in turn, increases the lack of concern for any self-care needs. This intense connection to the abuser cannot be broken, at least not without sending the abused partner into withdrawal. Luckily, just as withdrawal from drugs, this state is only temporary. The brain just needs time to recover. It is possible that while entangled in the trauma bond, a victim may feel useful or even proud of their ability to love their obviously defective partner. Imagine how positive this might feel to someone with very little to no self-love, as will eventually be the case with all partners of a narcissist. Noticing your partner's flaws and patting yourself on the back for being the person who can handle your abuser with all of the accompanying issues is also understandable. Your very own narc mate may convince you that you are special since you are the one person who can love them and their flaws. They will use this love as a weapon possibly even stating that if you leave them, no one else will love them. Obviously, different from all the other times they try to convince you that no one else will ever love you. NARC partners have a way of behaving in the most pathetic of ways, acting as though they are broken to no fault of their own, as a way of excusing their poor behavior and hopefully... Guilting you into sticking around? Manipulating you into feeling as though they will be alone forever if you don't put up with their abuse? Or is this just the result of you finding a justification for the poor behavior? For example, it isn't his fault. And then trying to boost your own diminishing self esteem? For example, I'm the only one who understands him. As you start to uncover the obvious issues with your mate's behaviors, and maybe start to do some research into what their mental health diagnosis may be, you may feel the need to care for this abuser or even protect them. There may be times when you will go up against other people who speak out against your partner and often push people away who aren't supportive of the relationship in the name of the great love you have for this person. I remember when I was first seeking answers about what was happening in my marriage and throwing every diagnosis I could think of at my husband and his behaviors, hoping one would stick. I felt so much obligation. I questioned everything about who I was and Wondered what type of wife I would be if I deserted this person who was so obviously mentally ill. At no time did I stop to consider what I would be sacrificing of myself to stay and care for him. Remember that by this time I would have been under that tunnel vision that focused only on my partner and would have completely abandoned my instinct for self-concern. Or maybe you believe this is fate. That you were put in this situation for a reason. So you can change this person. That you're the only person who's up to the task. But these are all just illusions. Justifications that will sound very illogical to you. Once you've broken the trauma bond. It is important to note, breaking a trauma bond will not be easy. A survivor of this type of insidious, unrelenting abuse is physiologically unable to simply ignore their biochemical reactions in order to increase logical thinking. Neuroscientists have discovered that long-term narcissistic abuse can lead to actual physical brain damage. You can't simply tell a survivor how to think, behave, or feel when traumatic episodes take place. Leaving a narcissist is beyond a cognitive decision. Cell recovery will actually be necessary in order for you to begin healing. This takes time, so give yourself a break if it feels like it's taking you a minute to feel like you're winning. Although the process of breaking your trauma bond is difficult, it's important to remember that it can be done. It's done all the time. So you will get there. You took a wrong turn, but it doesn't end there. This setback won't define you. You survived. So maybe it is possible to become addicted to an abuser in a way Which means it's also possible to overcome that addiction. You can. And you absolutely will. Tell your story. Write it down. And use it as a tool to help you heal. I believe you. I bet you have many times wished you were aware that narcissists existed and what this abuse would look like so that you could have avoided this person, realized what was happening sooner, or been able to support a friend going through a similar situation. It is so important to band together and make some strides in spreading awareness of this abuse. Getting terms used consistently when discussing narcissists and narcissistic abuse is an important first step in spreading education awareness and curiosity to eventually help all past and potential victims from these predators so don't forget to stop by our t-shirt shop on the website and get yourself a shirt to wear that brings facts and terminology into the public eye do you feel like you've made it to a good place in your recovery And maybe you could share your story with others to give them some hope that things will improve. Or maybe some support in knowing that they aren't the only ones who've been through something similar. You can send in your survivor stories to IBelieveYourAbuse at gmail.com. And it may be discussed on the show or posted in a support forum on the website to help out other survivors. If you would like to host a peer support group for other survivors, please reach out and let us know. And don't forget to visit our resource center on the website to find a shelter, therapist, support group or legal advice near you or online. And I'm constantly adding to this list, so if you have a lead on a therapist qualified to work with narcissistic abuse or know of a support group in your area, please send in an email and I can update the list. There is no reason for this to be such an isolating experience. We need to be here to support each other And support groups are so helpful to many people that are without a proper support system. Till next time.